I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here, reporting to you from a muddy farm track out in the fields of Norfolk County, UK. It's a nice afternoon out here towards the, what are we looking at? Coming up to the last week of September 2023. Very picturesque painterly clouds, bit of sunshine over there beyond them, not too windy, nice temperature. I would guess at hmm, 16 degrees Celsius. What about that? Okay, I'm going to just look it up, see if I'm way off. 17 degrees. That's a good feeling, isn't it? When you can accurately feel the temperature. It's one of my skills. They call me Thermos. How are you doing, podcasts? I hope you're not too bad. I've been all right, thank you. Just doing lots of podcast bits and pieces, trying to line up some interesting conversations for you between now and Christmas. Out here with my best dog friend, Rosie. She's perky today. Came out quite happily. Yes, she has the orange padded harness, but I'm glad to say there was no tugging required. Steady. Okay, look, come on, we've got a lot to get through today. Let me tell you a little bit about episode number 204, which features a rambling conversation with British television and films writer Jesse Armstrong. Jesse Facts, Jesse David Armstrong was born... That's a good, solid name, though, isn't it? Jesse David Armstrong was born in 1970 in the West Midlands town of Oswestry in Shropshire, England. It was in the early 1990s, while studying at Manchester University, that Jesse met Sam Bain, who, by the way, you can hear me talking to on the next episode of this podcast. Some of Sam and Jesse's earliest writing jobs included the legendary sketch show Smack the Pony and kids' sitcom My Parents Are Aliens. But their breakthrough came with Peep Show a sitcom about two variously dysfunctional young men, Mark and Jeremy, played by David Mitchell and Robert Webb, sharing a flat in Croydon. Between 2003 and 2015, Sam and Jesse wrote nine series of Peep Show, making it one of Channel 4's longest-running sitcoms ever. And, I dare say, one of the best. During that time, as well as other Mitchell and Webb projects, including a film, Magicians, Sam and Jesse wrote two series of the sitcom The Old Guys, four series of the college student comedy drama Fresh Meat, one series of metropolitan police satire Babylon, co-created with Danny Boyle, and Sam and Jesse also found time to collaborate with comedian Chris Morris on the script for his film Four Lions, a comedy about hapless jihadis from Sheffield, released in 2010. And there's quite a lot of chat with Sam in the next episode about that film and working with Chris Morris and how Sam and Jesse approached the challenge of writing a comedy about domestic terrorism. Jesse and Sam 
set up a production company together in 2017 along with some other pals and they remain great friends. But in recent years, Jesse has been writing a lot more on his own. Some of his solo writing credits include the first three series of The Thick of It, Amanda Iannucci's satire of the inner workings of British politics, starring Peter Capaldi as Malcolm Tucker, a fearsome, foul-mouthed, behind-the-scenes enforcer, said to have been inspired, at least in part, by Tony Blair's sometime strategist, Alistair Campbell. Jesse also worked on the Thick of It film spin-off, In the Loop, And speaking of films, fun fact, Robert Downey Jr. bought the film rights for an episode of Black Mirror that Jesse wrote called The Entire History of You, in which people have implants that enable them to play back their memories like videos. It is one of the best episodes of Black Mirror. Watched it last night with my son. He hadn't seen it before. Holds up very well. No sign of the film version so far, but all that in recent years has been rather overshadowed by succession. Jesse's saga about the power struggles between the super-rich, super-damaged children of Logan Roy, a Rupert Murdoch-style media baron played by Brian Cox, with the main three children, Shiv, Roman and Kendall, being played by Sarah Snook, Kieran Culkin and Jeremy Strong, respectively. The first series of Succession aired in 2018 and concluded earlier this year, 2023, in a flurry of critical hyperbole not seen since the glory days of shows like The Wire and The Sopranos. My conversation with Jesse was recorded face-to-face back in mid-June of this year in London, and we talked about Jesse's comedy influences, why he's happy to leave the fourth wall unbroken, whether Peep Show was realistic, separating the art from the artist when audiences laugh in the wrong way, and whether satire does more harm than good. Plus, much else. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now with Jesse Armstrong. Here we go. Ramble chat, let's have a ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a ramble chat. Put on your conversation coat and find your talking hat. Tell me about David Sedaris and what he did with his notebook. <laughs> Before we were recording, listeners, I uh, told Jesse that, well, Jesse has a notebook. Jesse just told me that he's going to get a notebook out and write anything down. If it occur- What kind of things would you write down? No, no, I'm not going to be generous like Sedaris and credit you. This is just things I think that I can then say that might make me sound clever. Oh, I see. While I'm talking. Yeah. So if I can forget a question or I've got a follow-up or... Oh, my God. You're like so Like, my brain's exploding in a million directions. I need to just capture just a few of them. That's good, man. That is a valuable insight into the world of the successful... <laughs> But you were just telling us about Sidaris. I was telling you about the fact that Sidaris, Sidaris, uh, the first time I spoke to him face to face, the second time was over the Zoom, he had his notebook. And at one point I said something I don't exactly, I think it was a phrase I used, a sort of Britishism. I can't remember what it was, but he, it made him laugh. And he said, can I make a note of that? 
And uh, it was quite a common thing as well. It was it was saying something like someone was a bit of a twat or something. But he loved it <laughs> and it made him howl and he wrote it down. I was like, yes, that is, I've been noted by Sedaris. Uh, one I heard at football the other day was quite a lot of rude shouting and then you're not fit to referee. And I thought that's quite an archaic construction for a whole football ground to do. You, I don't think you'd get that in America, would you? You're not fit to referee. <laughs> You're not up to referee snuff. <laughs> Who's your team? Oh, that's complicated. Do you want to get into it? No, I mean, this isn't... You don't not, care. This isn't going to last for long because I don't understand and I don't care. But I'm just saying for people who are interested, they might like to know. I grew up uh, in Shropshire, which isn't near enough Manchester. I grew up a Manchester United supporter. And to fulfil all the um, preconceptions people have about Manchester United supporters, I mainly go and see Fulham because they're, they're in London. Right, okay. So now I'm becoming a Fulham supporter. Is there a profile for a Fulham supporter? Yeah, sort of Man United supporters with a, with a season <laughs> ticket. No, but I am now a Fulham supporter. I really, I, Fulham are very, I like watching them. Good goals recently? <laughs> don't, Adam, don't make yourself do it. No, no <laughs> and what are you up to now then? You're on holiday. So we are speaking in June of 2023, mid-June. It's a hot day here in London town. And have you already moved on to your next project? Because when was the last time you put pen to paper for succession? Oh, actual pen to paper. I guess we do some tiny bits of so-called ADR in the edit, but that finished in like March. So uh, yeah, that was the last time I did any writing. Yeah. And so now you're just kicking back, having cocktails, doing podcasts? Yeah, basically I am. I'm trying to do that. I'm quite I like work always structures my life. So I'm trying to see what it's like without having that so much. Are you someone who has projects lined up so that as soon as you finish on one thing, you know what's next for you? Or do you spend a time wandering around in the creative wilderness waiting for inspiration to slap you in the tits? <laughs> I've, I've never had a, an experience like this before. because I've never worked, you know, the British model is often for writers and everyone maybe in TV and comedy is to have a few things cooking because that's kind of how it works and how the money is works because it's usually less and people don't have exclusive deals. In the US, you know, once your show is going, they buy you the fuck out. You're not working on anything else and they're not very interested in hearing, oh, maybe I could go over here and just, I might need to go to do this for 20 minutes or can I take a day off? It's like, no, we paid you a lot of money and you're doing this. And that's quite relaxing if you've lived a bit of a portfolio sitcom life of oh we'll do a season of this and we'll do this me and Sam trying to do you know three things at once so I've never got to the end of something like this and not had anything lined up and it's quite uncomfortable but quite I don't know I'm trying to find it interesting mm. also you're on strike right also we're on strike which is helpful from from the point of view of not doing anything can you give a potted explanation of the strike and your position within it to someone who doesn't know anything about that world? Yeah, it's, it's the WGA who are on strike, Writers Guild of America. And yeah, it's been a long time coming. They have these contracts which like describe the minimums that you get paid and it's, it came up for renewal. So this was a point where, where it had to be decided what the minimum money was. And then a bunch of other issues came up, in particular AI and the, the way that writers have started getting less money in the streaming world where you tend to get bought out for your for your script, i.e. you get one payment that lasts forever rather than writing an episode of Friends and 
you know, coining it until you're much older. And indeed, for lots of other writers who aren't on Friends, you know, you work on something and you get those residuals that might keep you going as a little bit of a pension through your career mm-hmm. and AI, which is complicated. And the AI aspect, though, is, I mean, who did I hear talking about it the other day? Someone sort of saying, I think it was Tim Key saying that he'd been sat in the park and he'd overheard someone, a couple of kind of exec looking types, TV exec looking types in, in the UK, this is, just talking about ideas that they had generated on chat GPT and that they were quite good and they were going to commission some of them. <laughs> I don't know how real that was. <laughs> that sounds like Tim Key. That story. Um, yeah, I don't... Obviously, there's a bunch of dangers for writers and, and actors and everyone creative, especially, I guess, what it is, is like we've, we as individuals who are working now and also the history of writers have done a lot of work on which especially those large language models would be trained. So like, that's not AI, right? That's humans who've done work that computers are then training on to do subsequent work. And we need to keep money coming through to human beings for all the work that's been done, whether it's like us last week or maybe people formerly. So uh, I guess we're trying to get into that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you feel about it? Do you, have you lost much <laughs> sleep over AI? Um, no, I haven't personally. I've managed to put it in that box of like, oh, I don't fucking know. Also, there are some things, right, which you can see, you know, you, there's a missile launched from North Korea and it goes over Japan and there's alarms everywhere over South Korea. And there's uh, the climate evidently swinging mm-hmm. more violently. AI so far, the, the jokes I see on ChatGPT don't scare me much. Maybe when I see one that scares me, I will have a different view. But right now, it's, I'm, I'm pretty happy for those execs to wander around with their pictures. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness. No, I mean I I'm I'm not too stressed. The music thing particularly indicates to me that there's not that much to worry about at the moment. Not at the moment. Not at the moment. So let's fuck it. Don't worry. Let's not worry about that one for the moment. Yeah. Okay, good. Um speaking of music and football, <laughs> this is a very uh, a tenuous segue. But you studied in Manchester. Yes. And so I'm imagining that those two factors were at play when you went football and music. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of a period when football wasn't such a thing in the in popular culture. And I probably hit that. I probably dipped out of football a bit in that era. But definitely music, New Order, Smiths uh, and Stone Roses and Happy Monday starting to come. But especially when I, when we started going out from where I come from, Shropshire, North Shropshire, um, you know, Manchester and Liverpool sort of had the biggest gravitational pull and that was the, it was the New Order Smiths era. So they were, and, and the Hacienda. Um, so that was a big pull for Manchester. When did you get to college in Manchester? 91. Okay. And you were doing American studies. Yes. What made you want to do that then? Ah, uh, it's a good course. You do literature, history and politics, but you do them about one place so they all interact. So you find out, you know, the literature informs the history, informs the politics. It's a good degree, I think. And you get to go abroad for a year and you don't have to speak a foreign language. Nice. Unless you count American as a foreign language. <laughs> <laughs> and who were the Americans that you were into at the time as a fan of movies and music? and? Yeah, good question. Or books as well. Yeah, I guess... Had I read widely? I think I was a, yeah, I probably 
gravitated towards the cult book section in in Waterstone. So I was probably hitting Kerouac and Henry Miller. And okay. I'd probably read some, I had certainly read some Fitzgerald and Hemingway. Um, the Beats. The Beats, yeah. And I, like, I always liked poetry, and so I read some poetry. And what were you like? Paint me a picture <laughs> of Jesse Armstrong at the beginning of the 90s in Manchester. Oh, yeah, good. It, it, oh, at Ma- in Manchester. Well, by the time you got yeah, there. By the time I got there, what was I like? It's very difficult. I'd like to hear what other people made of me. In my own mind, I was, I guess... Um, well, what were you wearing for the first <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I was going, trying to go to the Hacienda. Certainly, we were quite often getting turned away. But I was probably wearing 90s baggy clothes with some beads. And, beads? Yeah, beads. I would go as far as beads. I don't know if I ever carried them off successfully, but I was certainly wearing them from time to time. Did you see any bands? Yeah, I guess we did. You always feel right that you're too late. If it's 1968, you're probably arriving in Grosvenor Square just after the demo left. And like, apparently John Lennon was here earlier. Like, so it felt like that already. I think I'm right that I went in, maybe I went in 1990, Anyway, it already felt like it was over. Like, so everything always feels like it's over. Oh, you should have been at Hacienda last year or last month. Looking back now, that was right. It was Ecstasy Central and everyone was off Yeah, because the rave scene was just kicking in right it was it was yeah it was heavily electronic music dance music was the was the thing so i guess we went to see on the guitar front my bloody valentine we're a big gig uh primal scream we're probably doing scream delica about then yeah. um probably was it a bit after massive attack were huge with that album right um the smiths had gone and new order were in a bit of a downbeat after technique as i recall but yeah it was yeah, good music. Mm. And then how did you meet Sam? We were on a creative writing course together. Oh. They didn't, it's something most universities didn't do. I think they do it more now. But in like the second or third year, you could do a, you could do a, a module, which was creative writing. And you do some poems and you do some, some writing prose. And um, we got to know each other then. And he was just into the same sort of stuff as you, was he? Or did you like his writing or what was the he, thing that... Yeah, I liked his writing... I liked hanging out with him and I, I think our proper writing relationship developed actually once we'd both left. I think he was in London before me. He used to send me letters and I'd send him letters back. And I think that more, even more than the stuff which we'd seen of each other's in this little writing course, which was more socially getting to know him, I was like, oh, you're really funny in these letters. They were just funny letters. And this is like on holiday, was it? No, this was when this was when that was the best form of communication available to two human beings who lived in separate cities and didn't want to spend a lot of money on the phone. Uh-huh. So um, and maybe were, had liked communicating by words. So he'd send me funny letters and I'd send him funny letters back, I hope. And I think, yeah, that was what was one early thing of um, our collaboration. And also he his Mum was in Terry and June, and his dad was a celebrated TV director, including Upstairs, Downstairs, other stuff too. She was an actor in Terry and June? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wait, who was she? She was um, BT, the next-door neighbour, the best friend of, of June. God, I didn't know I think BT's the name. So he had quite a sense of like, oh, you know, you can, you know those things that are on TV, sitcoms, you can, people write those. Yeah. Obviously, I knew that, but I didn't know it like he knew it, and you can make money doing that. And so he was maybe a little bit more um, just attuned to like the fact that you could have a career doing something like that, which it wouldn't 
it might have occurred to me eventually, but not for quite a while. You need someone precocious like that, don't you, to show to show you that it's possible? Yeah, you do, and and also, yeah, somebody. I don't think I th- I hadn't thought like that about. My dad wrote books. He'd been a, he was an English teacher, and and then tried to get published, tried to get published, and then eventually, about the time that I was leaving home and school, finally got published as a crime novelist. So when I thought about writing, I think I thought about prose, and that was like maybe the model I'd had. Whereas he, Sam had this very um, clear route into like TV and film. And did you read your dad's books? Oh yeah. Did you? Oh yeah. What, is, 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 <laughs> Well, I never read anything my dad wrote. Didn't you not? I mean, in I have Telegraph? now. No, you didn't. When it, no, no way. No way. It was so boring because <laughs> it wasn't about TV or anything. Plus, no disrespect, Dad, uh, in your grave, but he had a very old-fashioned, quite stodgy style. Uh-huh. He loved long sentences. What would be an old classic opening sentence? Oh my God. Uh, something like, you know, not dissimilar from enjoyable air travel that I've undertaken in the Far East. The prospect of being delivered into the warm embrace of the Antipodes on a long haul. You know, something like that. I mean, honestly, he was he was a great writer and I'm, I'm reading sure. his stuff now. He was one of the greats. <laughs> uh, he wrote a, a memoir that I finally got round to uh, reading properly. I'm trying to do an audio book of it, in fact, as a kind of side project. But that's really made me appreciate, oh, you know, he really was good at writing. And I'm sorry I didn't give him that respect mm. at the time. Because I know that he was annoyed that the family never used to read any of his stuff, you know. But uh, you did. Good for you. Yeah, good. Well, it's it, it appealed to me more and I was interested and, yeah, they're good. And did he used to talk about things that he particularly liked or disliked in writing? Huh. He's an enthusiast. So I guess what I got from him, uh, he's quite demanding in terms of prose. Like he would not read something that wasn't well written uh, in, in interesting prose. So I got maybe a, uh, a sense... And I've come to share it maybe that if it's not interesting line by line and isn't powerfully put, I'm not interested. Do you remember some of the first things that impressed you when you were reading them, thinking, wow, this is good writing? (laughs) Yeah, I think that was slower to come, the feeling of like, oh, this is good prose. I remember funny, funny books and funny books being, finding a funny construction just very 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 appealing and seductive um who were those writers who well i guess the things the ones i think of are i remember my friend jason and me being on the floor of a train reading out bits from woody allen's um what those prose collections getting on and without feathers Mm -hmm. um there was one called a guide to the lesser ballets and it had a line in it about something like um the brass opens in triumphant mood, but underneath it, the trombones play in a minor key, suggesting that soon all the catering will run out and everyone will all be dead. And <laughs> <laughs> what's amusing to me now is that I guess it was parodying those little praises you get of ballets or operas mm-hmm. when you go to see them, I guess, or also in guides. I was completely unaware of that form. Yeah. Never would have read one of those. And yet the mocking form of that, I understood it all immediately. 
in a way, or enough to get the joke. And how about films then and TV shows? What kind of things were making an impression? Um, what did I like? I, I guess all the things that were around, not nine o'clock news and them faulty towers. But I think uh, the young ones was the first one where I was like, oh my God, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. I didn't know somehow they, they were older than me, the people who wrote it, but it felt like, oh fuck, you're allowed to sort of mess around in the culture like you can people are saying things that I understand what they're talking about and it's very bracing and like incredibly I guess it's quite a punk feeling it was anarchic Jesse it was anarchic they used to say on BBC2 and now time for anarchic comedy on BBC2 with the young ones and my dad if he was standing in the back of the room he would go anarchic and then he'd stalk out in high dudgeon, revolted at what was happening in the culture. <laughs> Did you Aww. used to watch with your folks? Can't remember. It certainly wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have taken that view of it. Mm. But I don't know if they embraced it like me and my friends did. The Young Ones was amazing, and it did feel... Did it have the same... Did it, was it the same show for you? Was it that well, first it was, one? Or? For me, it was coloured a lot by... By your dad. By my dad, because I felt... I mean, it felt extra transgressive for me, because yeah. I felt the weight of his disapproval so keenly. Yeah. And I felt... That put me off a little bit. Did because, it? Yeah, because I, you know, I loved Dad, uh-huh. and he was... You know, he loved me too, so sure. it was a relationship I valued. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, if Dad hates it, then great, I love it, because Dad's a fucking dick. Yeah. I didn't feel like that. I was like, I love Dad, and if Dad doesn't like it, Maybe then there's something Maybe I shouldn't wrong like here. it. Yeah, yeah. So that that was in the back of my head. But I was just swept along by it. You know, it was it was too much to resist. Yeah. I was getting into the young ones as we had our first VCR. My dad got to road yes. test one. Okay. So I had a three-hour cassette where I had like the whole first series of the young ones. Oh, hello. And then I learned how to tape long play. Okay. And then I could stick all the young ones on there. <laughs> and we watched the living hell out of those things. Yeah, I think my Julius, my friend, had, had that. And we'd go and watch that on VHS. Yeah. Those might be almost the only things in my life that I've tended to rewatch. I, I'm not a big rewatcher. Okay, right. Yeah, I'm sort of obsessive. Like, it, when it was an option to get the jerk on videotape, <laughs> I'd get that. And I'd whole chunks of that were burned into my... Actually, no, I lie. I saw it in um, on holiday, and it was on the, the, the cable channel and the hotel TV. Uh-huh. But we had a video camera, again, that, that my dad, because he was a travel writer, he occasionally got to road test these bits of tech. Uh-huh. So we had a very early, clunky video camera. And I taped off the TV whole my favorite sections of The Jerk. Okay. And just watched them back over and over again. And it was mainly the... <laughs> It was mainly the gas pumper, die gas pumper bit. <laughs> he hates cans. He hates cans. <laughs> he hates these cans. I feel like I've stolen the bit where he goes into the bathroom and thinks it's his office and rewritten <laughs> it in about four different shows with different people, Jeremy and Greg, going into small spaces and sort of trying to make out that they're more accommodating than they are. Yeah. It's a killer. Oh, my God. I should, see, I should be making notes here. <laughs> Can we do sidebars? You're the boss. Oh, it's dangerous, though, because then... What's the main course? Do you want me to use my notepad? I'll draw a tree diagram. Will you write down (laughs) small spaces and Tom (laughs) throwing bottles of water? Yes. We're going to talk about that later on. Okay. 
bla 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 Gary Shandling. Mmm, yeah. Heard you talking about It's Gary Shandling's show. Really? And did you used to watch that? Because that was, you would have been quite young. Yeah, I remember that was like, that was like the spooky, like, I think that might have even been like when I was ba- having babysitters. When was that show on? I feel like that was like late night Channel 4, like slightly scary, on with the Czech animation, what's going to be coming up <laughs> next. Uh, yeah, that's late eighties, eighty six to oh, right. I was sixteen. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember it. I remember, I, I remember it more for like form, formal invention than actually like, oh, I love, I love that show. What were the formal things that struck you about it that were? I, I, it just has that fourth wall thing, doesn't it? Like the, you, it's like a sitcom, and then you pull. It's I don't know the show that well, but I know I remember that fact and feeling both interested and slightly unnerved by it he's a character in a sitcom who is self-aware yes and he knows that he is a character in a sitcom yes i mean it is well meta yes like it is meta in a way that would be pretty full-on meta now yeah but for for the late 80s it just feels as if it's been teleported in from another dimension yeah and the theme tune as well this is the theme to gary show called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary's show? This is the theme to Gary's show. The opening theme to Gary's show. This is the music that you hear as you watch the credits. We're almost to the part of where I start to whistle. Then we'll watch it's Gary Shandling show. That is written by Joey Carbone, along with Gary Shandling and Alan Zweibel, who wrote It's Gary Shandling's Show. But that's late 80s. Of course, there were other kind of self-referential meta shows before that, I'm sure. But nothing that went that far with the form of TV comedy, I think. And which now feels like it informs the whole of contemporary culture. I was watching a video essay on YouTube the other day about how modern movies are now in a kind of meta-modern phase. So you had your modernism, Uh your kind of classics of the post-war era, then you have your Tarantinos going all Uh post-modern and self-referential and fucking with the form and turning Uh it inside out. And now we are in the Uh meta-modern. And And can you define the metamodern for us? So that is even more meta than postmodern. Uh-huh. Even more self-aware. What would be an example? I suppose more metamodern would be still Tarantino. He's transitioned into kind of metamodern from... Yeah. And something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Which really screws around by, by just playing fast and loose with the truth of the historical narrative that it's based on. Yes. 
I'm... Yeah, you're looking very sceptical. I'm a little bit sceptical. I think I'm a little bit of a... There's nothing new under the sunnest. Right. I think, you know, Tristram Shandy did it all sort of... That's my thing. I I think um, it was Woody Allen who said, all history is a footnote to Hegel. I have no idea what I mean by that. But, um, yeah, no, I think... Things that play with the form, I think, occur to artists quite quickly, uh, uh, I think. And that was never something that you were that interested in doing, because obviously the potential for Peep Show, when mm-hmm. in its first incarnation, mm-hmm. was to be quite postmodern and metamodern. I mean, as far as I'm aware, the initial iteration of Peep Show was, was a kind of Beavis and Butthead, yes. MST 3000 thing about a couple of guys yes. watching TV and yeah. commenting on it yeah. with head cams. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I guess it, I, it's true. I'm not... I mean, I like formal invention in other things. I like Charlie Kaufman's movies a lot, but it's not something that appeals to me. I mean, Peep Show was formally inventive in terms of, like, literally the filming approach, but I I think that's tricksy enough. I'm not particularly interested in the... Yeah, I'm just not particularly interested in the breaking the fourth wall element of that, which is almost all of that meta-ness. Why do you think you stay away from it instinctively? I think I don't have many tricks up my creative sleeve, but the main one and the one that interests me is like, what's real? What's true? What's the thing? What is it? What's it like? What's what's anything like? Why is this like this? And uh, I think if I gravitate towards anything, it's immediacy, realness and truth, like those are the things I'd love to capture. And so those layers aren't helpful for that. In fact, they're really unhelpful. My approach or shtick if you if you were being ruder is just like what would it be like if you were really there and so in succession you don't go meta in that you don't really reference the real cultural landscape or even the business landscape too much i mean they're very broad strokes references aren't they you don't go too specific is that right uh, it's a really, really weird line that has to be drawn almost line by line. We don't, you know, there's some, we didn't tend to go any further forward than the Clintons in terms of real political history references, because you start then having these uncomfortable, well, if that's that, who's that? But we'd certainly mention some political figures. Yeah. And then we, you know, we mention, I think, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and we mentioned, we mentioned some people. There's just a line you can't cross where the audience's mind, to my mind, starts bumping on, well, if that exists, how, how does this fictional world that you're representing relate to that world? And it start, things start to curdle. And it's quite a curious area where there don't seem to be super hard lines for me. Uh, and, and maybe it doesn't work for some people. But it, I, we just have to try and draw those lines case by case. Mm-hmm. Because thinking about what you were saying before about how things need to feel real or possible in the life that most of us know, it's really important to me watching that as a comedy fan as well. There's been a lot of shows that lots of people really, really love, but I've never been able to engage with because too often I'm just thinking, but the whole premise of this scene that is supposed to be funny would never happen. No one would ever do that. And I know it's comedy, I understand, it's silly, it's over the top, but it's just, it just wouldn't happen, so it's not real, so I can't engage with it. But then, were there ever moments where you felt you were right up against the line in Peep Show or or, or any other shows that you did? Yeah, yes. 
Um, and they're difficult because you because because in a way that's what you're doing, right? You're you're trying to bend it, bend it. Like how big or uncomfortable can a situation can we create that like, still feels believable? For example, wedding episode in Peep Show, pissing on the uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I think that's good, and I I believe every step of that. So I I would defend that. The, the there's an episode where there's a they lose a dog and it gets um, they burn it, and then Jeremy has to end up eating it. And I and I remember saying to Sam, like, do you think we could get him to eat the dog? And I'd like to go back in the writing room and make sure that every step for me things need to be real to be funny or dramatic and and so that's always why plotting for me is the key to it all and and the hardest bit in some way um is get getting the getting the story right that's believable but not to dwell unnecessarily on the peep show church wing incident sure but i did think that felt to me like one of those moments where i thought like i would be interested to know what the conversation was so for listeners if you haven't seen the episode classic episode of peep show sort of midway through the whole thing, really. Uh, series four, I think. And um, Mark and Jeremy are hiding out in the church. Mark's about to get married. And Jeremy is absolutely busting for a wee. Could happen. The guests, all fine so far. The guests, uh, Mark. Mark's having second thoughts about getting married, which is why they're hiding out. All the guests are there. Everyone's wondering where they are. Jeremy is absolutely busting for a wee. But it's this tense moment. He can't abandon his friend who is having doubts about getting married. And he also can't draw attention to their presence. Right. So what's he going to do? Where, where can he wee? He looks at, there's a bucket. Prayer a, bucket. A prayer bucket or a collection bucket or something. And he thinks, well, maybe I could go in there. And I was thinking, yeah, that's what I would do. I'd go in there. What's wrong with the prayer bucket? I just think the how do you make the leap from, yeah, I'm just going to piss in my pants, in my suit. <laughs> I'm going to piss in my wedding suit. And the piss yeah. is just going to leak down onto the yeah. wedding guests. Well, yeah, what you've got, hopefully, hopefully what you've got there is <laughs> the interplay of their very particular relationship. Because it's the fact that um, I think Mark tells him to do it. Yeah. Oh yeah, that is that adds a sort of sadistic <laughs> and complicated edge to the to the situation. Yeah, the risk for them is that someone he he feels he'll die, Mark. I think if 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 he's discovered up there because he's either considering going down and getting married or not, and so it's very important he's not discovered until he's made that decision, and so he's very worried about Jeremy making a noise. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was. I'm more worried by the width of the hole, the the gap in the floorboard. The floorboards. I'd like maybe a slightly more um, evident gap to to allow the the urine to drip through. Oh, I hadn't. I didn't worry about that. I thought oh, that was good. entirely plausible. Oh, good. I, I was sort of thinking. Well, presumably they rationalised this. If there was any rationalisation. Oh, be there done. was. Okay. Presumably they rationalised this. Like it's too. It's too funny a premise to get precious about. The idea that the wedding guests are being dripped on by Jeremy's urine. I guess things which are glaring errors, which are psychological to one person, are merits to me. So I can see how you'd be like, well, I wouldn't do that. I'd just say, fuck you, I'm going to go 
and sort of crouch in the corner or go downstairs. Jeremy has got a different attitude towards maybe his bodily functions and embarrassment, lower threshold. And so for me, Mark telling him to just do it where he's sitting <laughs> is both funny and also it's just plausible. But I can see that for somebody else, it wouldn't be. I guess it taps into a lot of situations I've been in that are very similar of, of wee-wee anxiety. If you keep on going on about this, I'm going to fucking walk. Okay. If you've so. got a problem about it, <laughs> let's just take it outside. I can't go back. I, I can't re- get back in the edit, was, Adam. I'm, I'm just, sorry if I'm, you hate the show. I love the show. I was really laughing. I just thought this... This, this ex- is fucking bullshit. I just thought this exemplifies... The kind how of sh- up, no, no, no. How uptight I am when I'm watching sometimes. Yeah. And I was thinking, because I was thinking like... But you don't mind the dog? Is, no, I mean... You hated that too. No, 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 no. Is there any episodes you liked? <laughs> Listen, I loved it. And it was... I'm not looking for I, I I was bringing it up because I was interested to know what the conversation around it was. I thought it trod a fine line. <laughs> and... There are the other shows that I'm thinking of, uh, which I won't mention. I just felt like too often they they didn't even bother with any of those conversations. Yeah. And, I, it, and, and I couldn't relax into them. No, nor me. No, it has to be real for me. Uh, uh, but that I think, like, I honestly do worry a bit about the dog. I don't think Sam does. I honestly don't worry about the wedding. And I'd sort of write it again tomorrow if... You, it, go, you go ahead. Thank you. Have fun. You have fun. It's a great premise. Why wouldn't you write it? <laughs> it's just, just ripping on the guests. <laughs> That's not even my favourite bit. My favourite bit is when he tells him to start and then tells him to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably cut the weeing through the... Anyway. <laughs> just get the edit going. Crank it up. All right. Well, look. How realistic is it for someone to be in a confined space and start hurling bottles of mineral water... At another human being, but yeah, I mean, it's all—it's just humans, isn't it? The thing is, uh, if you—that's my starting point. Like humans can do anything. Yeah, I mean, that has been unfortunately shown in for good and ill, and so there's no question about can this happen? If anything can happen. It's can it happen to that person? Can they put be put in the situation which will make that happen? I tend not to start from the premise of like let's get tom to throw water bottles at greg that isn't usually a natural evolution of where we think the story has gone however i'm not above thinking of it'd be great to get to point x or this would be a funny situation if we got people into yeah were you there when they were throwing mineral water at each other yes it was great Um, (laughs) of course it was it was great I think they were probably empty and we were worried about getting the the weightiness to look right. Yeah, it looked really right. Yeah, and some of them may not have been empty. I can't recall. Yeah, it it on the day often it's not quite as fun as you'd hoped because it's all about execution. Like we've got this bit, I think it's going to be good. So there's quite a lot of anxiety about the capturing of the great thing, but I think it felt pretty good on the day. And then that, that climactic Greg and Tom fight in the final episode. The, the one in the, between Tom and Greg in the bathroom were, was just right. The first, I think we only did it two times. They, ju- they, were, they were both ready and willing to sort of make contact. And the, there was, it was a very small space. I guess there was only one camera in there with them. And they went for it. And that sort of shock and recoil is pretty hard to fake. So, yeah, that was they went for it. 
Do people do real slaps ever? Or is it all, are people always pulling their punches? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. It looked pretty slappy to me. I mean, I don't suppose they was trying to... Yeah, look, I think they were near, near full volume. Did Brian Cox really slap Kieran Culkin? No, I, no, I don't think so. That was a big slap. Yeah. 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 I, you'd have to... It was a long time ago, and I'm really bad at remembering things, but I think he was trying to pull his punch. He might have made physical contact. Oh. And how is it on the set? Are you having fun? I was watching a documentary about Kubrick the other day, <laughs> and no one was even pretending that it was fun to make a Kubrick film. Like, no one involved at all was having a good time on those sets. And he was totally unapologetic and said, well, you know, it's, that's what it takes to, to get things right. But it seemed pretty miserable. Yeah, no, our sets are not miserable. It's like uh, occasionally when people come to visit, I say, like, I, you know... It will be boring, but it's about as good as it gets. Um, so so it's pretty fast moving. It's pretty funny. So it's a pretty fun set. There's also an inevitable grind to the repetition um, of, you know, it's pretty fun the first time and it gets usually gets less fun after that. Although sometimes it builds to a peak and you start getting something else, find something. And how about things like... Um roman's cockney accent when they're in the kitchen in barbados was that all something you'd written going oh he does a funny cockney accent or or was that last minute no that was written that was written um he does do good english accent and so that was in there um but he is good at improvising that was very good and that was a set was it presumably you weren't in barbados oh no we were in barbados Oh, you were in barbados yeah i mean i was going to ask you Obviously, we all know that uh, the the excessive, shallow lifestyles of the super rich are contemptible. But what was your favourite location? <laughs> what was my favourite location to you shoot went, in? You did some pretty oh, great ones. Yeah, the best one when we shot. I'm not proud of going on about these sorts of bits of it, but. It was nice when we went to Italy. It was during COVID. We had dispensation to travel. Unlike those people at the Tory HQ having their Christmas party, we were allowed to do what we were doing, which was to move around in 2021, I guess. But we were in Florence and it was not very crowded. It was full of um, Florentines mainly. And that was pretty great to see the city a bit depopulated. Mm. And then the other one that made a big impression on me was the Gojo Retreat. In the last series. Oh, yeah, in Norway. In Norway. Oftentimes, I don't get to really enjoy the places we are because I'm often working on the next episode. And when we were in Norway, it was a particularly tough time on a subsequent episode. And I was going out of my nut a little bit. So the ones that are at the end, like in Italy and even on the boat, are more fun for me because we've then basically got the episodes written and we're working on the alternative lines the alts here and there and looking at edits and stuff but in the middle of the season i'm frequently completely absorbed with getting the next episode or the one after that right so norway was quite a bleak time in my life oh really and what are you like in that mode are you able to keep it together or do you yeah. get heavily drunk or no <laughs> I'm just work obsessed, and so the actors all went off and did a, had a had a really nice time at a hotel up a fjord. And I guess the thing about the show for me is you can't believe how bad it is before it gets to be good. You know, it's it, if you like the show, 
you may feel it has a sort of essential quality of goodness to it or that's what sometimes things seem like that one likes right that if you like a show it's like oh, that's it's probably always sort of good and it either really isn't or it really feels like it isn't for me until we get it there it just feels terrible you know mm. it feels like oh wow we've got all this way and now we're going to fuck it all because this episode's going to be shit and it's going to be a disaster and the whole thing's going to fall apart because we're going to do this episode which just is not subtle interesting good or true and that's going to destroy the whole thing so goodbye so that doesn't feel good and you're like getting up every morning thinking how the fuck do we fix this what's it what's wrong it seemed right in the room why isn't this story working what's wrong and you're having those stresses on location you're not having i would imagine that you'd have those stresses in the edit oh well you have them all the way through that's the fun part but but you also have the wonderful feelings of breakthrough as well and and i'm not carrying that burden completely on my own i'm working with my fellow writers and the writers of the episode if someone else has written it but yeah you it it goes in waves right in you know we do we do a writer's room uh where we arc it all out and you have some of those anxieties but not nearly so acute because there's plenty of time we can fix it this everything feels fun this episode's going to be great that one's a bit of a dud but i'm sure we'll get it there and then the drafts come in and you're working on them and you get closer and closer to production and like you're two weeks out and it's not right. And that's the crunch point of like, oh, fuck, we're choosing the locations with the act- these are the actors we've got and it's not right. And that's the moment when it's most acute. And then you can lose faith again in the edit and be like, oh, shit, we need to save this one. But, um, but that's the most terrifying moment for me when the episode isn't right a few weeks out from shooting sometimes it's a good show sometimes it's bad but there's no point in getting all sad about it because tomorrow you got another show oh yeah time for another show unless you cancel I'm going to change gears. Are you okay, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, I'm great. I was thinking, like, is it a dead end and totally a redundant conversation to mention the sort of Woody Allen thing? Like, when you reference Woody Allen, is there a part of you that's thinking, oh, I've got to acknowledge that for some people he is persona non grata or he's cancelled or whatever you, however you want to call it? Or, or or, Or do you feel like... No, I'm comfortable in making a separation between the art and the artist, and I'm and I don't feel the need to have that conversation. No, I'm this, I guess there's just no fixed line. Like there's, it's all up delightfully and difficultly up for play. I think if it was a bit about his relationship to women, there's a whole bunch of things which are can't help but be part of the discussion about is marriage and then the sexual abuse allegations against him. And you can't get that out of your mind. I'm afraid that's in there, even if you're more sympathetic. What do I think about that? Listen, I think there's, there's not a huge amount of joy in the world. Grab what you can. I can still find pleasure in lots of his work, if you can't, I get it. I'm not going to try and convince you you should. Like, oh, you should be liking this. This doesn't matter. Or, or it did indeed, it didn't happen. I don't know. If it, if it fucks it for you, that's fair enough. And Michael Jackson, well, we don't need to list them all. Larkin, T.S. Eliot, the list is endless of people who, yeah. like, if you're... Bowie if for you're some people. Bowie for some people. If it's something that's affected you or for any number of reasons, 
those things can mean you don't want to listen to that person and that's all right grab what you can from the fire like i can still listen to morrissey and i can still enjoy it some songs i can't i wouldn't like bengalian platforms it's like oh fuck i didn't notice that at the time but Mm -hmm. that's not great so yeah that's i guess my attitude is there's no you're never there's there's never gonna be a final position like trying to definitively put a, a line like between art and the and the individual is you're going to you're going to hit trouble that way mm-hmm. like as soon as you get to hitler's water paintings or you know radovan karadich's poems you can't ever think about one when you think about the other yeah they're going to infect so there's no line you just got to work it out me and my wife <laughs> my wife had a <laughs> i couldn't believe, i do a thing uh in my book and occasionally live where I uh, pretend that I have a log. Well, I don't pretend it's real. <laughs> it's a log where I write down all the arguments I have with my wife. And now because I do it, it's real. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Because every time we, because it was a joke initially, but now every time we have an argument, I write it down in a log. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the ones we had the other day where I thought, I think this, I think this is good for the log. I'm not sure. <laughs> Was. Good for the log in that it's going to be a win, or it's just one that needs to be recorded? It's one that might chime or might strike audiences as entertaining or mm-hmm. absurd. But I don't know. I'll get your take on it. Okay. I, haven't, I haven't mentioned it to anyone Okay. Yet. Is this funny? <laughs> um, my wife came back with a carpet that her mum had passed on. It's a very old carpet. I would say... Beginning of the 20th century, you know, it's it's over 100 years old. This thing is not in a good state. And yet we have had it uh, passed on to us by the mother-in-law. And it is now in our house. And one of the reasons that the age is important is that it has... It is emblazoned with swastikas. And it's an Indian carpet. And of course, this swastika is an ancient symbol... Uh, that pops up in the uh, Indian culture and in Greek culture. I don't know. Anyway, it's been there for hundreds of years, way before the Nazis got to it and totally ruined it. In my opinion, they absolutely ruined it. (laughs) Not in my wife's opinion. (laughs) She thinks it's still good to go. I think they reversed the... Some are some of the uh, is some does it, do the bars go in different direction or is it a perfect swastika as I call it? It's it's um, square. Uh-huh. So the thing the, the the spin the Nazis put on it, literally or metaphorically or both, is that they twisted it again, literally yes. forty five degrees. Metaphorically, yeah. So that's not something that I think was in the ancient usage. It's in the eye of the beholder. You see, I think. Given the history, I think I could walk over that carpet and think, oh, that was from there. And you wouldn't then. think any less of... Right, yeah, uh, you would just put it together in your mind, this is obviously not a Nazi carpet. <laughs> this is, yeah, I think... I, and you might, you, What you might need is like some museums have now. You might need a little panel explaining a little the, the little plaque. About my side. wife. <laughs> About your wife. <laughs> you can have two views. You can have two views yes. by the side of it. This, this object should not be displayed, my according to is, A. Buxton. She, my wife is anti-Nazi, and yet she loves the symbol of the swastika. I wouldn't put that on your label. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why I was worried about asking you about Woody Allen. Anyway, um, 
we had it we we really went at it i thought surely this conversation is not going to last very long <laughs> but it really did because she felt like she thought i was being a child mm-hmm. and i just said i just think obviously they've obviously really defiled not, them i just think they have absolutely fucked that symbol i'm i'm with your wife yeah it's fine i think it's fine it's 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 an old carpet yeah Reclaim the reclaim the symbol. No, don't give no. The, no. <laughs> no, don't no, reclaim, don't it. reclaim it. <laughs> but it's I but would it I would have exist, it in the carpet. It can exist apart from the associations. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, she's going to be pleased about that. <laughs> but you might be cancelled. <laughs> Armal Rajan's interview with Brian Cox. No, I tend to keep a bit of a distance from all the stuff around the show. Although now I'm starting to read a few selected pieces that people send me and stuff like that. But you but presumably felt the seismic waves from the interview just washing over you from the sides. Mm, not being disingenuous when I say I can't quite remember. He was yeah. it. What did he say? I mean, it was one of those things. Look, you know. Uh, I did a podcast with Tom Hanks uh, earlier this year, uh-huh. and um, a couple of bits of that got picked up and run as news stories. I thought, fucking hell, that's news, is it? And he was he was talking about AI or something. And I noticed that uh, that Amal Rajan interview was picked up and lots of bits in the run-up to the finale of Succession. Okay. They were tying it in like that. But it was quite good value. I went and I watched it, and I thought, okay, fair enough. It is quite a spicy interview. Uh, he was spicy, was he? <laughs> Brian is spicy. He gives good quotes. So. He really does. I was thinking, wow, this is old-school, loose-tongued yeah, quotery here. Basically like, good. He doesn't give a fuck, yeah. He doesn't seem to give a fuck. There was a great bit. I mean, there's, there's quite a few great bits. I'll put a link in the description, listeners. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. And you could see Armal Rajan as well just going, oh, my God, he's you just saying it. anything. So he was, sort of, he was dangling all these topics in front of him, waiting for him to kind of go for it. And then the other thing I think that made the news that he'd probably said before, uh-huh. because I think there was a Vanity Fair interview with, with Jeremy Strong uh-huh. where he was talking about comments that Brian Cox had already made uh-huh. about the method, okay. about Jeremy yes. Strong staying in character while he was doing succession and being pretty hardline about it. Yeah. And Cox saying it was a little tiresome. Okay. So he kind of retrod that. That. Yeah. I know that you are a very diplomatic person, having heard you in an interview. I know that you would never go anywhere near that kind of topic. But... Do you ever have to smooth out ruffled feathers on set? Um, it, I'm the showrunner, and there's sort of certain amount of a, like a, a political leadershipy kind of role of trying to make sure it's a happy ship. I guess the occasionally the only thing I've occasionally tried to do is like facilitate it so that people talk to each other who maybe haven't talked to each other. And nine times out of ten, these things are 
things that are resolved in a conversation because it's like miscommunication or a one person thought one thing and another so occasionally you can try and make sure that people are communicating right because i would imagine that it is incredibly i mean i've done a little bit of acting and i know that it is it, it is mortifying so often just feeling exposed and and feeling like you're coming up short and the humiliation of that feeling and everything about it is very painful or can be like when it's fine it's great yeah but there are moments when things aren't going well when it is a peculiarly torturous thing to be doing and it feels so weird and exposing yeah do you do you ever pick up on on people just kind of going into a corner and crumpling a little bit Yes, I've seen it a few times in my career, people who just are having a really hard time. And it's so hard from the outside. It's like the people who occasionally say to me when I'm having a tough time with an episode, like, don't worry, you know, the other ones have been good. I'm sure it'll come right. And it's absolutely no use to you whatsoever because, you know, that's not what you're feeling. And I know that when an actor is not finding that thing that they need to perform, it can it just feels so unreal and dead to them. And usually I think the thing to do is a bit of space and a bit of time because sometimes you can help with words but a lot of times the words are not helping anymore because it's something that isn't clicking and you need maybe for the actor to articulate it or for some time to pass Mm -hmm. you know the actors who are on the show are so extraordinarily good yeah it's so asinine what you want to say like it'll be good just do it you do if you do it it'll be good because there are so many tiny micro things happening especially in the scenes with tom and shiv i think Mm. the sexy cruelty dynamic between tom and shiv is something that i associate with a certain kind of 90s movie joe asterhaas type movie basic instinct some of the dialogue in those movies really ridiculous kind of i'm not saying this is what you do in succession but it but it reminded me of a certain shift in cinema when you'd start getting these ridiculous supposedly sexy horrible mean conversations between people you know what i mean like we're supposed to get turned on by how mean they're being to each other and in those films basic instinct for example Uh uh-huh they do that do they they do that and you know you got jowly michael douglas and sparring with um Sharon Stone Uh and it's supposed to be super hot (laughs) (laughs) and they're saying horrible things and they're saying horrible things because (laughs) the sexiest thing is to want to kill someone (laughs) (laughs) you can't get more sexy than that (laughs) that is the ultimate sex a sexy stabbing <laughs> and uh, that, and that it, is definitely the subtext of that, isn't it? Yeah. And it reminded me in the in, in the at the wedding in Tuscany when they are being so mean and poor poor Tom. I mean, I say poor Tom; they're both as bad as each other in in a lot of ways. But he's sort of confused. It seemed to me like, are we doing se- being yeah. sexy mean to each yeah, other? Yeah, I think we only do that really once in that scene. I wasn't aware of the basic instinct vibe. But yeah, I guess, I don't know what I've got to say about that, except it's a good point. <laughs> and then I feel so sorry for him when he's, I'm just, I'm just describing bits from your show now. But when he gets the scorpion for her, and she's supposed to go, oh yeah, because I'm so horrible. It's like a joke about our kind of, um, our mean dynamic. But of course, 
it's a good observation that someone who's that damaged doesn't enjoy the idea of being seen that way. No, and no, is in that denial was a, about that it. was something that somebody we were working with in Croatia, a woman on the crew said that a boyfriend had got her maybe a live scorpion as a as a gift and like as a sort of knowing gift like you know what a sort of femme fatale you are and like that was the, immediately the end of the relationship because evidently that wasn't how she saw herself and so it always stuck with me as a a way that you could get someone wrong like do you enjoy the way that you're so in my eyes evil and tough yeah evidently she doesn't but i guess that's what you have to be like if you are a person in power. I mean, if you are someone who has a lot of power and you want to or need to maintain it, that probably takes a lot of qualities that most of us would characterize as negative, right? Like a certain sort of um, lack of empathy, an ability to see people just in terms of their utility, not to get too emotionally engaged with people, things like that. You know what I mean? Like, Well, yeah, I don't think there's any rules. Like Obama seems like he was, has remained quite a nice guy and was quite a nice guy. He was the most powerful person around. I don't think you need to do these things. You can run operations in lots of a million different ways. I don't think there's a rule about powerful people having to be horrible, but they definitely can be. Obama's a good example, though, because some people are so angry with him. You know what I mean? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's like, Obama, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to hear about what a nice, cool guy he was. He did more damage than so many other presidents in the end. Yes, I guess. But we're talking about two different things there. I, I think you can have legitimate criticisms of his like policy agenda and what he managed to achieve or didn't achieve and you know some of his foreign policy decisions. But I don't think those people would, would say he was a psycho who uh, was aggressive to his staff, right? He was evidently a boss who people still want to work with like the way he affected power in a way that was collegiate and amenable right so i guess those are the two different things i'm not super critical of obama i think i'm positive about his achievements yeah well i was i mean i always felt but that's a separate conversation probably from whether he's a good example of how power operates sure Uh (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm definitely not the right person to have the uh... The, the, the political version of that conversation. But speaking of politics, uh-huh. uh, I mean, you you were a, a spad. Is that right? Or well, you were I, think a I, was, I think I was a researcher. A spad is a special advisor. And I don't think at that time I was a spad. I think I was a researcher. Uh, and now maybe I might have been called a spad. Anyway, a spad is slightly more senior sort of sounding role. But yeah, I was a researcher for an MP. Right, Doug Henderson. Yes. And... That was in mid-90s, before Labour came to power. Correct. And how and why did you get that job? I got it, friend of a friend. I got it, first of all, I volunteered. So it was like a non-paying job initially. And then Doug managed to get me some money, and then I was properly on the payroll. Mm. So I was politically minded somewhat. So I was keen to be involved. Where did that political awareness come from i don't know why i ended up thinking i guess the thatcher had been in the tories had been in power for a very long time mm-hmm. at that time like 95 since 79 and uh, you know born in an nhs hospital gone to small local schools gone to a comprehensive gone to another a lot of places had been shut by the government it was evident that a, a bit like now there was just like a lot of people living on the streets like the Conservative Party cuts spending on the whole and public services and public spaces get worse under their tenure. (laughs) And I felt eager to help um, change that. Mm -hmm. And what's Tony Blair like? 
<laughs> I only met Tony Blair once and he probably wouldn't think if it was a meeting. I almost physically bumped into him backstage at the 1996 party conference and he was wearing a tracksuit and he looked really like, oh, fuck, is this what you do? You just hang out in your tracksuit all day, like maybe with some aides like Tony Soprano scribbling some like shit down and then jump into the action suit and go on stage. But it turned out he'd been doing a photo opportunity with Kevin Keegan doing headers. Oh, and he was, yes. He'd just come from that and he was so, that was my one glimpse of Tony Blair. So you didn't get to chat? No. Oh, no. Are you steeped in politics day to day now? Do you listen to politics podcasts? Are you there with yeah. Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart? Yeah, I listen to a bit of that stuff and yeah. quite a lot of American stuff that was partially for work, but I'm just interested too. So yeah, I, I am interested in that stuff. Mm. And how do you feel then about... Oh, I'm not going to ask that. That's boring. <laughs> 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 I was gonna, did you listen to the, the episode of uh, The Rest is Politics where they're talking about the Iraq yeah. war? Fuck yeah. That was good, wasn't it? It was good, wasn't it? I mean, it made me a bit embarrassed for the state of British journalism. Because you, you were like, I've never heard uh, Alistair Campbell as forensically examined as this. He was perfectly polite all the way through Rory Stewart. But he intellectually dismembered him. There was like nothing left to the argument. He was jumping from these ice flow to ice flow like a sort of desperate polar bear poor Alistair Campbell. I thought it was like a real nail in the coffin for that bullshitty, why is this lying bastard lying to me school of political interviewing where it's like, well, think about it. Think about the person's interests who you're interviewing. Maybe there are some psychopaths out there in the political world, I think, a few who are lying and venal and obfuscating for sort of to hide something awful about themselves or some huge gaping hole or secret. But usually they're trying to hold... what's something which is coherent in their own mind political position that probably is based on some values and so why is this lying bastard lying to me is not a good approach to get to an understanding and doesn't mean that doesn't end up in an equally or more brutal place for the position of the person who's being examined do you ever think though that us as comedians i mean i've never really done much political stuff but generally kind of comedians play a part in hardening people's perceptions of politicians and making them somewhat cynical like shows like the thick of it you know inform that idea of mendacious self-serving venal politicians yeah well listen i might get my notebook out of here because there's a lot in that and i do think about it a lot because i care about politics and i'm interested in it Oh, I've got, I probably have a few things to say. I guess one is like in the scheme of things. I mean, if you put the Iraq war into the balance with the thick of it, which one has been more damaging to the to the general public's view of like how much they can trust mm. uh, civil servants and politicians when they tell them things? I think you've got to say we're, <laughs> they're much more responsible than us. And, you know, it would not be an eff- effective show, a satire, comedy, if it did not represent some stuff people were feeling. And in, in that in the show, the central insight, I guess, is like um, a presentation has taken over from formulation of policy in terms of what's the leading energy behind politics. So that, that insight has to have some purchase for the show to work and that's also not of the show's doing also i'd say sometimes people remember shows as rather different than they are if you watch that show the ministers who are portrayed by rebecca front and chris langham are not they're not 
they're self-serving sometimes they obfuscate but they're not black-hearted they are out of their depth out of depth they're hapless usually and being pushed around by a by machine which they're they're out of control and leads them to do ludicrous things but it's not a show about very bad people It's, it's a show about what weak people can do under extreme pressure and I'm not uninterested in the idea, like, what's the worst thing you could say about the show and its influence on people's sense of politics? I actually think the thing which I didn't expect, and this is, I think, a fault in human nature, not something that's our fault, is how attractive people find powerful people. Mm -hmm. Um, People seem to find the Malcolm Tucker character, some people seem to find his energy appealing in a way I didn't anticipate and I don't think is the intention, if you can call it an intention, behind the show. And at that point, I think you just throw your hands up and say, look, I don't, I'm not you. You take what you want from the show. I don't intend this person to be seen as a good guy. But people also say about Logan Roy, like, he's got the real stuff and the kids are these flakes and he's the real deal. And that in some way, there's something good about that extreme manifestation of quite male dominating power. Mm. There was an episode of a Malcolm Gladwell thing about satire. Uh huh. Did you ever hear that? I can't remember. It's probably going to annoy me. <laughs> well, it was pretty scathing. And he was talking to Harry Enfield about loads of money. Uh huh. And Harry Enfield was saying, "Yeah, I don't think it did any good at all." As far as, like if you're judging it by was this an effective satire of uh, a certain kind of um, Toryish mentality, and did that change people's minds? Then no, went the opposite way. Do you feel that about satire? That it's, I think that the the upshot was like, no, it's redundant. You shouldn't do satire. It's a waste of time. I just thought, really? Uh, yeah, I've got to get my notebook out here because I've got a whole chain of thoughts about that. I guess the one version thinking about satire is poetry makes nothing happen, which is Auden's thing about poetry, but you might just as well apply it to any art right that it just is a separate thing it's a way of doing things a way of a way of happening the and he writes that about at the death of wb8 and i think the opposite way of thinking about art including satire is wb8 wrote a line about did that play of mine send out certain men the english shot he wrote a play that he felt or was seen as having been influential in the Easter Rising. And so that's the other fear of art and satire, that you actually do affect things, which is in some ways equally terrifying as not doing anything. When you put something out into the world, you've got no clue what's going to happen to it, I don't think, essentially. So you better be pure of heart because you better be able to stand behind it. And and I imagine Harry Enfield feels this way, like I was pure of heart when I was doing that and you'd better be because you don't know what's going to happen. And And after that point, it's not... I don't think it's your responsibility in some ways if someone um, takes Malcolm Tucker, puts him on a T-shirt and says we should all be Malcolm Tuckers or indeed starts going around Whitehall pretending to be Malcolm Tucker. Well, fuck you, that you shouldn't be doing that. It's not my responsibility to police your moral code. So you know that. And sometimes you might be on the side of the angels and your satire quote works and people think about it in a way which leads to the world being more as the satirist would want and sometimes it might happen that you get taken up in a way that you consider wrong 
but the only way to avoid that is to not do art, to do some bullshit propaganda that's just going to lie there dead. It's got to be open to multiple interpretations. Otherwise, it's probably bullshit. So, um, you know, the writer Laurie Moore, there was a good review of her stuff once, and I forget the writer, but it, her, the, the critics said something like, art is not enough, but it's all we have. And I think that's my feeling in the end is like I don't know but this is what I've got and I'm without being too I I guess I feel it's an honor to be able to be a part of the conversation which is yeah that's how I feel and it's lucky to be able to get your stuff out there and and fuck knows how it'll get received Mm. touched nerve (laughs) (laughs) is that is that would you put that under the category of fuck Gladwell or, or is that who am I coming out in favour or against of there in the cultural discussion. I think we're fucking Gladwell. Yeah, fuck Gladwell. And we might be fucking Harry Enfield's oh, lack of sorry. faith in... Lack in... of faith, yeah. I, or maybe you feel defensive. You see you see your stuff get misused yeah. and Johnny Spate had of this, course. didn't he, with um, Until Death Do Us Part. Yeah. It's tough. You put your thing out there and and it it would feel it feels bad Careful when where people, you put your thing. Careful where you put your thing. And I remember the, doing this with Four Lions, listening to it, playing in um, Sundance when it first came out. I think that was the place it premiered and hearing people laugh in the audience and thinking, oh, fuck, you're laughing in the wrong way. You're like, uh-huh. you think this is funny in the wrong way. That, I think that was cross-cultural confusion because the American audience didn't get the world of the people or it was people being too eager on the first night. Luckily, in the UK, most people laughed in the right way. But it's scary when you can f- when you feel that people might take your stuff not how you intended it. Needs a plaque. Everything <laughs> would have helped with a plaque. Everything needs a plaque. Uh, I would like to go and put cotton wool in the mouths of the people who are laughing wrong, but it's, it's frowned upon. <laughs> Everything needs a plaque. lengthy explanation. Let's little audio explanation beforehand. With uh, this is this is how to approach this, and this is how to feel about. You might it. like to read this, this, and this before you considered laughing at that joke. Yeah, exactly. Like the uh, yeah trigger warning type. Um, things which i think i i feel like to be serious though i feel like that's okay like a n- not a long version of it but you know you, you show you don't stop showing the films with the bad ideas and the bad language just put a thing in front of it saying just so you know there's some language that's pretty outdated that wouldn't be acceptable today and some ideas that are no longer au courant i'm happy with that yeah you know have a go <laughs> enjoy the uh Nazi carpet. <laughs> um, so, all right, man, we should, we should. Can I just say how pleased I, I, I really, you know, I've been on my own quite a lot in America over the last few years. I just love the show. You're such a nice interviewer. I think that everyone who's been on Desert Island Disc should go in the House of Lords. But I think that coming on your show is, is like a, a knighthood. So I feel like I've been knighted wow. by the culture. That's really nice of you to say. Thanks, man. And may I say, that I like some of your stuff. <laughs> and um, I just, you know, why did they have to piss on the people in the church? I'm joking about that. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed your stuff over the years and how many real emotional and comedic thrills I've had. And the combination, that potent combination of being emotionally invested, deeply emotionally invested in characters who also make you laugh and say mad things is so powerful well i'm closing my eyes because i find it difficult to accept praise but it's very nice of you to say 
This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Wait. Continue. He hates these cans! Stay away from the cans! Welcome back, podcats. Rosie, come here. Say hello to the podcast. No, thank you. I'm going to trot on. She's trotting on. Whoa. Pheasants hiding in the undergrowth, Rosie. Just stood there. <laughs> These days, Rosie sees the pheasants running around. Oh, there's loads of them. And she just lets them get on with their lives. So that was Jesse Armstrong. Nice little love-in there at the end. Wonderful. I'll say more about Jesse in just a second, but I wanted to very briefly appeal once again, and I know I do this a lot, to your generosity, and ask if you will join me in supporting a former podcast guest, Lorna Tucker. Lorna is trying to raise funds to get her documentary about homelessness, Someone's Daughter, Someone's Son, into cinemas. It's a great doc that incorporates Lorna's own experience of sleeping rough in London for nearly two years when she was a teen, a time of her life that she talked to me about on the podcast last year. That is in episode 191. If you haven't heard it, there's a link in the description. It was a fascinating, hair-raising story that Lorna had to tell. But she and her film make the point that homelessness is a problem that is getting out of control needlessly. There are things that can be done to provide practical help for people who find themselves, for whatever reason, living on the streets, and to move towards a society where homelessness isn't on the same scale that it is today. And getting Lorna's film into cinemas would help spread the word and the awareness of the problem. So if you're able to, please contribute to Lorna's Kickstarter page where she is raising funds to distribute the film. You'll find a link in the description of today's podcast. Thank you very much. Back to succession, though, and Jesse. I'm very grateful indeed to Jesse for making the time to talk to me the other day. And actually, when we recorded our conversation, I didn't yet know that I was going to be hosting a live event with five of the succession writers, Jesse and Tony Roach and Lucy Preble and Georgia Pritchett and John Brown, five of the British ones. There's also American writers that work on the show. 
but it was just the Brits for this event, which was a couple of weeks back as I speak, at the Royal Festival Hall. I think I'm right in saying that they have uploaded perhaps a slightly edited version onto YouTube. There's a link to that in the description so you can see Jesse and the other writers chatting about the show and responding to my occasional bits of nonsense. There's a link in the description if you're interested. But back in June when I was recording the conversation you've just heard with Jesse, it was a lovely hot day and when we'd finished we were in East London and we walked down Brick Lane and we went to a cafe bar place and sat outside and it was down a side road opposite Rough Trade East, the Recosto. Rosie, I'm going to go this way. Rosie's just been chasing a squirrel. Oh, it's like the good old days, isn't it, Rose? Anyway, me and Jesse were having a drink and there was a sign outside Rough Trade which was announcing that Damien Lewis, the actor and star of shows like Band of Brothers, Homeland and Billions, was going to be playing a live set of songs from his debut album, Mission Creep. I was telling Jesse that I was quite a big fan of Billions, at least when Damien Lewis was in it. And just as I was saying that, who emerges from Rough Trade East but Damien Lewis, looking kind of like Antonio Banderas in El Mariachi. He was wearing black jeans, skinny jeans, black shirt open to his chest, black aviator shades, cowboy boots. He had a guitar case slung over his back. The only thing he was missing was a a cheroot and a pistol. Although maybe he had those tucked into his pants. I guess he'd been sound checking before his show and he was popping out for a sandwich. But it was quite weird <laughs> to, to be talking about him and then suddenly here he is looking like um, El Mariachi. And he walked right past our table. And I'm afraid that's the end of the story. I just thought it was a funny moment that I'd share with you. Don't forget, though, that, and I haven't been asked to say this, but I wish to tell you as a friend, that the Succession script books are now available. And they are big, they're giant, and they would make a very nice Christmas present for the Succession fan in your life. Packed as they are with fascinating stage directions, originally intended just for the actors, and there's other intriguing bits of insight from Jesse and the other writers about the show. It's a, a very interesting read, if you're a fan. All right, don't forget to check out my conversation with Jesse's old writing partner, Sam Bain, coming up in the next episode of this podcast. Whoa! Stereo pheasant. There's another one. Rosie is just... Rosie is, Rosie is gambling through the field of, what are we looking at here? I'm so ignorant. Maybe the leafy parts of turnips? Anyway, there's enough leafiness to disguise all these pheasants hiding in there. And Rosie's jumping around and flushing them out, having a great time. Yes, I am. 
Hey, thanks once again to Jesse Armstrong. And thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his, as ever, invaluable production support and conversation editing. Thank you to Helen Green. She does the artwork for the podcast. Thanks to Acast for their continued support. But thank you most of all to you. We here at the Adam Buxton Podcast are aware that you have a choice when it comes to podcasts and we appreciate you returning to join us with your ears from time to time. Thank you and we look forward to waffling with you soon again. Would you object if I gave you a, a formal hug? Hey, come here, it's good to see you. Until the next time, we share the same sonic space. I hope things go okay. And for what it's worth, I love you. Bye!